Welcome to Call and Shots. This is Seth Partnow. I am talking today with uh, a friend who has recently gotten to live the dream, especially the dream <laughs> of anyone who follows or covers a uh, a team with a with a non American uh, superstar uh, from DNVR, uh, Adam Mares. Uh, hey, Seth. Thanks for having me on. It's funny. I really was living the dream. Sometimes you start these intros with a little hyperbole or this or that, but I think on this one, um, you're right. This, I, I, I had a, a great dreamlike week in Serbia. Well, I mean, it was, and also it was a work trip. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was working. It was a uh, grind. So, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was basically a staff, almost a staff field trip. Oh. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I mean, there were seven people from DNVR that went. At DNVR, we have three. Uh, Denver Nuggets analysts, uh, full-time. We have one part-time and then one other guy who's basically our, um, he's one of my partners at the company and he's like our branding expert, but he's also on our show. So we basically have a five-man podcast rotation, I guess you could say, and then one producer and one videographer. So seven people. Um, and yeah, all out in Serbia doing this week-long trip where we did a bunch of interviews, met a bunch of people. We have a bunch of fans out there. And really just with the aim of learning more about Serbian basketball culture and history since for seven years now, we've been sort of intertwined with Serbia and a large part of our audience comes from Serbia. So um, I guess my question from that is tell me everything. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was great. We were hoping to do this trip a couple of years back right before the pandemic. You know, that obviously put a... a a delay to it, but we finally get out there and it was all built around. The trip was built around a World Cup qualifier between Serbia and Greece that was taking place in Belgrade. So we fly out there. We spend basically one week, um, you know, just just basically doing the full tour. Like, let's all right, we're going to eat the food. We're going to go to the museums. We're going to talk to people on the street. We're going to talk to fans. Uh, we're going to go to Sambor, which is Nikola Jokic's, you know, hometown. Um, we got to go to his, he, he, he owns like a club, a club team in Sambor. So we got to go to that gym. It was the gym where he grew up playing. I thought you were about to say that he owns a club and it's like, that does not sound like, <laughs> from what I know of Nikola Jukic, that does not sound like his bag. I mean, maybe it's like a, like a, an equestrian club or something. Like that, well, so he does actually own a hippodrome. So he obviously has Dreamcatcher stables, which is where he received the MVP, where his horses are, are, um, you know, where his horses are. But then right behind that, there's actually the, the actual hippodrome where they do the races and everything. So he, he does own, technically he does own a horse club and a horse, uh, you know, horse track. Um, and then also while we were out there, you know, Jokic, I'm not going to say he is a clubber, but he is a little bit more than you would think. He's not a James Harden, but he has, you know, he does get out there to the, in Serbia, they call them splavs. They're clubs that are like floating on barges in the river. Um, so he's actually been, been spotted out there a time or two. It's not, it's not too foreign to him. Okay. Well, uh, fair enough. <laughs> that might be surprising to people. That's why I, I slipped it in there. Well, no, but then, then there was, uh, there, I, I think I remembering back, there was the video of, of, uh, I think it was when, when the nuggets were in Miami, there was video that came out of, right. of uh, it was like him and Aaron Gordon. And I forget who else, like, they're singing like in a club singing the Serbian anthem. Right. I can't remember. I think it was for a special event, I believe. I can't remember if it was a Serbian holiday or something. But right, yeah, he was out there with his brothers going hard. Uh, and usually it's funny, the club music that he prefers, he's got like the more traditional like Serbian folk techno style. It's always like, when I hear it, I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> how, could you, how could you spend a Friday night doing this? But, you know, that's, that's what he does. Well, we're, I think we're probably both washed enough that we hear any club music. It's like, <laughs> no, it is the kids that are wrong. It's, um, it's a, so, so true. Um, so, but, but sorry, I, I kind of, I kind of interrupted you. I got, I got the, you know, Nikola Jokic clubbing kind of took me. Oh, right. Moment, so, so yes, yeah, so we went to Sambor, you know, and got to see what his hometown was like and talk to his youth coach who coached him when he was just a kid, um, get some of these great backstories that you can only get by traveling all the way across the globe to talk to these people in their, you know, sort of on their home court. Uh, and then we watched a Red Star soccer game, which is, it, it was like a huge game, an elimination game of sorts for them. If they won, they would have gone into the Champions League. Um, so, or, or whatever the top league is, I'm going to screw up my soccer here. You could probably correct me no, on that's it. Right. That's right. But, so they lost. So, but we had to see that one live, um, and just kind of get that atmosphere. And then of course it all culminated 
after doing all the interviews and all of those things, it culminated with getting to watch Jokic versus, or I'm sorry, Jokic versus Giannis, Serbia versus Greece in a World Cup qualifier, which was itself a sort of elimination game. Both teams trying to qualify for next year's World Cup. So it was actually a game that carried a lot of importance. Um, so the trip was kind of perfect. We learned all about Serbian culture, Serbia basketball, Jokic, all these different things. And then we get to watch the game through new eyes. Uh, and, and it was really special. Um, so I've never been to, I, I have been to, to some high-level European soccer matches. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to readily describe the atmosphere. I mean, probably the, the closest analog to that in the States is a, is a is a rivalry game in a, on a college football Saturday, right? Um, yep. I've ne- I haven't been to uh, I, a high level basketball game though. I've seen them, you know, uh, plenty of times either you know watching film or or just watching the game. Um, I'm not sure there's a basketball equivalent to that. Can you describe that? It would the basketball. So well, first of all, the 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 soccer game. It's obviously bigger. I don't know what it is, 80,000 people. I, I don't know what the actual number is, but everybody can imagine a soccer stadium. And, you know, it, you know so you got the fans, different color-coded. You know coming in that there's no shirts on the seats. Everybody just knows you're in this section, you wear red, you're in that section, you wear white. And I'm just impressed with the fact that 80, 100,000 people, whatever it was, there wasn't a single person going against the grain there. That was like everybody shows up that way. You got an hour before, you can hear the stadium from, I'm not kidding when I say this because you walk there, you could hear it at least a mile away just roaring uh, as you're walking in. And then, yeah, people just, you know, obviously standing, screaming, hollering the whole time. You have the, uh, I don't know what the section's called at the end. I know in, 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 like South, in Latin America it's called Popular. I don't know what it's called in Serbia, but you have the people there that are all, you know, flags and, and flares and, and, you know, just the, the, it's just even crazier in those parts of it. Um, the, the visiting teams get to, are, are placed in a cage, which I think is hilarious. You get a little section. And this was true, by the way, for the Greece-Serbia game. All the uh, opposing team's fans, they give them a space in the arena. Like, hey, okay, if you're coming from, if you're traveling to this one, you can come. But we're going to put you, all of you guys together, which makes it a cool, uh, kind of a cool experience. But you asked if there's a facsimile for basketball. And I think it would probably be something like Cameron Indoor Stadium or something like that, where, you know, everybody's there for one specific reason. Everybody's... You know, there's no alcohol served or food served inside the arena, which I think is hilarious. And when you ask people, why is there no beer? They're like, we're not here to drink. We're here to watch the game. And you're like, oh, all right. I thought those two things went hand in hand, but I guess not. Um, so it was just cool. It was a very, like, I would call it a honest experience, meaning it was, like, very pure and untainted. There's so many, so much money left. There's no, like, box seats. You know, there's none of that kind of stuff. It's just everybody kind of pile in, cheer for the game, and when it's over, you go home. I, I think the 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 away section is is something that it, that from coming coming to a European sporting event from an American side is is one of the the, the biggest um, uh, adjustments to make. In, in some ways, it's actually it's one of the reasons why it's often like hard to get tickets going, coming from over here. There is like, well, they don't they I mean because because uh, very good historical reasons. They sort of don't want supporters of the away <laughs> right. buying, you know, tickets in the home section and vice versa. So it, it, it's uh, I, I don't know if it was the case there, but but, you know, in, in the stadiums I've been to, there's like an entrance, like each sort of section of the stadium is like it's a vertical that you go in and and like you can't yep. go to the left or right of that. Right. And so it's like the people who are sitting in like this little slice in the stadium, this slice of the pie are you know, you can go up and down, but you can't go side to side. It's 100% like that, and it's hilarious. Like I said, you have the opposing fans in a cage for their own protection as well as everybody else's, so you don't get sort of fan bases mixing. And you're right, they go through a certain gate. They can't, nobody can go anywhere else. It's like, hey, you're at that seat. You go through this gate. You go straight to your seat. That's it, which is funny because I, I've thought a lot about this. I was the only American media at the Serbia-Greece game. And to my knowledge, I don't think anybody else was there uh, other than my colleagues. And that game was incredible. It went to overtime. It was back and forth with what I consider to be the two best players in the world, the, the, you know, the two last players to win the MVP in the NBA. And it was for all the marbles, so to speak. It was a big one where both teams want to qualify. So the fact that nobody was there, I kept thinking, this is insane. You know, if we're showing, um, you know, LeBron James goes to the, to the Drew League and he plays, it's like ESPN, we got to pick this up. We got to watch it. 
You got, you know, AAU teams playing. Oh, we got to watch. We got to put that on ESPN. I'm sitting here thinking Giannis, Jokic, must win. Great storylines, which we can get into if you'd like, but there's some great storylines and great stories to be told behind it. And I'm the only guy there. It was special to me because it felt like, you know, people talk about the dream team. Oh, they had the practices and nobody will ever see the footage, but it was the greatest games ever played. This is what it felt like, this competitive game between the two best players on earth representing their country, and nobody saw it. You know, other than the people that were there. But your point about the stadium is interesting because everything about how that game was displayed to fans was about the experience of the game. And, and, and it really makes you think, like, obviously in the U.S., everything about the experience is about how to make money. So when you said fans sitting in certain sections, one reason you can't do that is you really are just selling on where the ticket is. I want to sit close. I want to sit far. I want this angle. I want that angle. It's not thought of as the game experience. It's thought of your own personal one. And obviously there's pros and cons to both of these. There's things, the NBA or just American football or whatever it is that gets the theatrics of it that can be great. But there was something really special and I think even more emotional. If you're into the basketball part of it, there's something that was just so pure about the way they ran it there where it was like, no, you walk in, you go to your seat, you get there an hour early, you stand the entire time, and when the game's over, it's over. But that's all you're there to do. There's nothing else going on to distract you from just watching and cheering for the game. Um, Given my... Um, thoughts on t-shirt cannons. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it'll surprise anyone to, to know that like that sounds really cool to me. And that's, that's, that's certainly like the thing that, that the first time I went to like a, a, a soccer match over in Europe was like, oh, you can just like come in and watch the game for 45 minutes and then, okay, have a right. half time and then watch the game for 45 minutes and like stand and cheer the whole time and there doesn't need to be a bunch of other shit going on and everyone has a good time. Huh. <laughs> and so steeped in tradition, too. And here's one thing about that Serbia-Greece game that I thought was so cool that you only get if you were there. And I'm going to, you know, I'm making a documentary with DNVR on the whole trip and the whole experience, and this will be a part of it. But one of the cool things, so everybody's in the building, you know, at least 30 minutes before, but most of them an hour before you start filing in, go straight to your seat, stand up, here we go. About 30 minutes before the game, you know, it was almost like a, a, a procession or something. You bring out Novak Djokovic. And, you know, everybody cheers. Then you bring out Bodiroga, who's a, a legendary Serbian player, and everybody cheers. Then you bring out Boban, and everybody cheers. It was just like, it was almost like this cool thing where if you could imagine, you know, a Lakers game where you just bring out Magic Johnson and Shaquille O'Neal and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one by one, so that the crowd gets this extra boost before going into it. And it was just so cool. It was just so traditional and so, like, connecting the entirety of Serbian basketball history to watch this very meaningful game. And that's why I say it's insane to me that nobody was there to tell this story, other than obviously DNVR, but that ESPN or somebody wasn't there because it was so rich in, in, in stories to tell, and the game itself was fantastic. I mean, that sounds like back when, you know, like, the, the heavyweight champion of the world was, like, <laughs> totally. the, biggest, the biggest title in sports, and you'd be like, oh, and the ring announcer would be in over here. We have Frank Sinatra. Right, <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it, that seems kind of... In, and and I would imagine a somewhat similar, like, I don't know, a, the, the feral is the wrong word, but intense, and and like let's let's get after it kind of atmosphere. You could just tell it meant something beyond just the game, and I'm not trying to be too heavy about it. It is at the end just a game, but it was this thing where it was like, hey, the last. 30, 40 years of Serbian slash Yugoslavian basketball history is in attendance to watch this game. It just gives it a little extra weight. And all the people there are like, hey, I'm here with all the legends. I called it a living museum sitting there courtside, a living museum watching this game between the two best players on earth. And I just thought it was such a cool thing. Did you, did you, like, I'm just curious as to, it's always interesting to see people from uh, one sporting context, like, watching another, like, uh, you know, Serena Williams' recent run in the U.S. Open, like, you know, it was, it was right. kind of cool to see Tiger there getting getting right. up. Was, Absolutely. Did you, did, you spe- did you watch, like, what Djokovic was, was, was doing at all, like, did, like, what his reactions were during the game at all? You know, I was more interested because of just where my mind was and, and the things I'm thinking about as a storyteller. I was more interested in people like um, Jelko Obradovic, who's considered one of the winningest coaches in European history, who's also, you know, for, for the Serbian national team, he has a bunch of, you know, big events under his belt. So I was more interested in that because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, Jokic is now the guy. This is the Jokic era of Serbian basketball. So I was more like, 
it felt a little bit like the legends of past seeing if Jokic can live up to the standard that they had set. And not just Jokic. I'm not trying to make this a one-man thing. This is such an American thing to say. But I mean this iteration of Team Serbia with the legends there saying like, hey, we've won golds. We've done all these things. Let's see what you got, you know, next generation. So, I mean, that's, I mean that, that sounds incredibly like college football-like. Totally. Just like, well, you know, back in, back in 72, we, you know. Right. <laughs> it, it totally is. I mean, you can imagine, yeah, a Kentucky game or a Duke game or something like that, and it's, you bring in all of the past legends, and you have some that won, some that went to the Final Four or what have you, and it totally felt like that, where it's like, hey, you know those guys are watching behind the scenes, but when they're actually sitting courtside, all of them, you're like, okay, this is pretty cool. So the game itself, let's like sure. I mean, I you know on on you know on Nerdish wrote like Dave Dufour and and our, you know, our friends Dave Dufour and Modekiel wax rhapsodic about kind of the the high level European style of basketball. Um, Love in it. a in sort of a a very pressurized environment, which this obviously was. Like like what was the basketball like? It was unbelievable. I, I mean, it's funny. We're coming out of a summer where you'll see the Rico Hines runs or, you know, you'll see these different pickup games at Lifetime Fitness and you're like, oh, how fun is that to see these guys there? But they're going half speed, three quarter speed. This was one of those games. And by the way, I'm sitting courtside myself. I, at this moment in time, am also royalty in Serbia at the time. So it kind of, well, hilariously we'll so. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll get we, to that. We can get to that part, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'm sitting courtside and so you're just seeing Giannis and Jokic and everybody else just going full speed at each other, and just how physical that game was. The European, the, the, the European game, it's weird to say this, because I think it has the opposite reputation. It's just so much more physical. I mean, they call fewer fouls. The, the refs will almost mock you if you think you got fouled or something. The refs will kind of give you a face or what have you. And it's just, it's so intense. It doesn't stop. There's no, you know, very few timeouts or stoppages. And so I'm watching this game, and to me, the number one thing I'm thinking is it's so physical and so mentally taxing because there's no breaks. You just got to go from one play to the next. And obviously, you've got Giannis, who's just unguardable. You have Jokic, who's just unguardable. And it, it was great. To me, it was a super high-level basketball. And then the last piece, you know, the, the European players are getting more athletic, but they're still less athletic than their American counterparts, by and large, just painting with a broad stroke. But the the passing and sort of the... Um, cohesiveness is off the charts. So many teams, I'm watching Spain, Finland here in the background. Spain in particular plays like the Spurs of old. Uh, you know, Team Serbia at their best was playing like the Spurs or the Warriors of old. So you just get a lot of teams that seem to be able to make extra passes, not just one or two, but make multiple extra passes and play on a string a lot more cohesively than, than what you would typically see in a regular season NBA game. Um, it, why do you think that is? I, I think it's a couple different factors. One of the, the most interesting one to me, because obviously you're going to get something with a lot of these guys, even the Serbia national team. They've been playing with each other summer after summer after summer. So there's a lot of, unlike the NBA, you look at Spain, you look at Germany, you look at all these guys. Most of them have some kind of years-long connection to each other and to the style of, hey, we're going to do this. This is our our basketball philosophy and our identity you're working towards year after year. But I think the most interesting one for me is the rule changes. One, just so much more physical out on the perimeter. Guys are, you know, putting hands on each other. Guards are trying to do quick moves and they'll get a guy beat and then they'll just get kind of hip checked or whatever. And it's it just a lot more physical out on the perimeter. And then of course the centers being able to basically just camp out in the paint and, and not have to go out on the perimeter and just do all these different things. It allows for, I think, you've got to make extra passes. You don't just stick four shooters in the perimeter or three shooters in the perimeter, run a ball screen, and you have a wide open empty paint. You can kind of have guys camp out. And to beat that, as Italy did against Serbia in the first round of the elimination round, you have to make, you know, you break down the defense the same way you do in the NBA, but you have an extra defender there. So it's going to take two, three, four, five, six passes after the breakdown to find the open guy and to fully take advantage of the breakdown. And um, teams in Europe, for whatever reason, are just more built for it, I think, because that's what's required to win. Yeah, I think I always sort of worry that there, there's, you know, um, the, the, fetish, the fetish, uh, fetishization there you go. Of, of that style. Thank you. Of that style of play. <laughs> like, I think, you know, it's the, the, the line between it being necessary and effective and it being um, overly scripted overly coached overly right yeah totally is that, that that's a tough line to thread but i think if you're 
I mean, the, the teams you're talking about playing and the environment you're talking about playing is, is not, it's not ornamentation. It's not, well, we got to throw four passes before we do anything. It's, no, you have to throw four passes to do something. I remember a couple years back, um, this, I think before Haralabob was working for the Mavs even, James Harden is in Houston, and it was like Warriors, Rockets, you know, what's the better mold or whatever going forward? And this debate was raging, and he said, if you don't have to throw any passes, why would you ever? Like, passes can turn into turnovers. Never pass. James Harden is proof of concept. Just spread the court and let him go. And it's true. In the NBA, this is the thing. If you Daryl Morey the league and you get a Clint Capella rolling to the rim and you have James Harden, just stick three guys in the perimeter. It's way too much ground to cover defensively, so you're constantly having to pick your poison, and there's no extra pass needed. So I think his point was more it was a salient one, but it's an NBA one, which to me is a little bit gimmicky just given how much you can't guard the perimeter. If you can't guard the perimeter, at any given time, you're going to have 15 players who can't be guarded in pick and roll in the NBA, maybe more than that even, who just can't be guarded. And it doesn't take a whole lot. Collapse the defense. One, maybe two, you know, one pass and maybe a skip pass just to swing it around, and you're done. That's all it takes. Like I said, I think in this, watching these European leagues, it allows the defenses a little bit more liberty, which requires just a little bit more teamwork. I think that and I think that was a uh, a good adjustment the league made from I mean not to make this about the NBA but the NBA did make it a little bit harder to trade advantages from the perimeter last year than the year before with some of the uh, some of the the, the um, I don't want to say crackdowns but some of the reinterpretations on foul seeking behavior right, I right. think that I think that helped and I think that like you're right I think that that you know a lot of the the things we find, you know, aesthetically displeasing about the modern NBA game are really the the um, result of of you know what what Bob was talking about. Like, okay, let's distill this down to what do you need to do? What's the most effective way to do this? If right. the rule set makes it so that the most effective isn't the prettiest or is widely divergent from the prettiest, that's you know you need to change the rules because we're trying to. It's, it's supposed to be entertainment now national team setting it's it's maybe something more than that so that that's a whole other like whole other kettle of fish that that you don't have to that you don't necessarily in regular season nba basketball there's just no way to replicate that but and I, yeah but i have but, to say i do find this this style of basketball i'm watching through them teams like serbia and spain and and some of these other ones like there's a, there's enough variation for example slovenia plays a very dallas maverick style of basketball luka has the ball a lot but it's still even though you're playing that style, it really it still requires the other four players to be more than just PJ Tucker, who's just catch and shoot or cut or whatever it is. He still you still have to be able to maybe it's catch and go and keep the ball moving or make an advanced pass or what have you. So I, I there's still a little bit of variation, but I have to say I enjoy the aspect of it that to me flattens things out a little bit. I think in the NBA right now, it's, I think it's especially with bigs. But in addition to only needing one or two passes after the breakdown to, to fi- finalize a play, I think bigs become get put into a box a lot. And we have some players trying to break the mold to various levels of success, although not supreme success. But I still feel like in the NBA, it prioritizes players who can shoot off the dribble from the perimeter. And I think it devalues any type of defender who is good at anything other than blocking shots or switching out onto guards. It, a la Draymond Green or something like that. So I still think that the NBA like, is in a corner in terms of what works, and I think that makes basketball a little bit less interesting. How much of that is, I mean, something that you, you kind of mentioned was the, the fewer stoppages of play. I wonder how much just that, that, that aspect of it, just the continuous play aspect of it, um, changes yeah. things. I'm always blown away when I see like oh, those old ESPN classic games of like iconic, you know, final 1993 finals, and you think of the kick out to uh, you know to Paxson or whatever, and you watch the final five minutes of that game, and it just happens. There's not a lot of timeouts. There's not a lot of anything, and you think, wow, you know, you think the strategy and all this things going in, it's just free flowing. You watch an NBA game now, and there's eight stoppages, eight timeouts, you know, a, a review, another review, two, five stoppages, three timeouts for one team, four for the other, and it's just crazy. So I do think there's something to it, because the game almost feels more like players, can you just read what's going on and go, it's less perfect, of course, less because it's less scripted and less planned, but it is a lot more reactionary. Um, so I don't know. Again, I'm coming off of this experience, so I know I'm kind of tainted by my own sort of like this great experience that I had. 
But at the same time, I like ba- it just feels a little bit more like natural basketball, meaning just guys, can you figure it out on the fly, go at each other, and then you're done. I mean, I think that, no, I think it's always useful to, that's why I think it's always useful to experience other forms of basketball because we get so NBAized that it's like, it doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, one of my sort of favorite rhetorical questions is, what are we doing here? Right, right, right. You know, you, you mentioned like those, you know, the old games where where the last five minutes would would have minimal stoppages, and then okay, well, some calls are wrong, so we want to do replay. But we've kind of the replay is kind of siloed off, so we do everything possible to get the call right. It's like right, that's you're sort of you're you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit there. It's like okay, we spent three minutes and got this call right, and it came off this guy's fingernail, and but at what cost to the overall thing? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, people, it, this is, this is sort of why, why surveying people is always, is, is, is always because people will answer surveys and say the most important thing is to get the call right. And it's just like, right, no, you right, don't actually right, believe right. that because <laughs> otherwise you, you, you want them to do that in like three minutes left in the second quarter too. And nobody wants that because so there's obviously, you know, some balance between like whatever notion of perfection then but anyway that's, the, the that's more me. well the, the, the more you're t- talking though about this the more i think that that specific idiosyncrasy the fewer timeouts and the, the more just natural game flow does lead to more teamwork because if you think about it when you call timeouts one, one of the things i'm blown away with is a team will go on a 12-0 run and won't call a timeout it's just like hey well this is how the game goes like you just have to respond and i think that naturally you know, puts it in your mind of, hey, this isn't a let's call a timeout and run a play for this guy to settle things down. It's like, how do we collectively solve it? And that's true at end of game as well. It's not a, all right, let's call a timeout. We need to isolate so-and-so on this wing, and that's what we're going to. It's just play. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure. There's no planning. It's a little bit of chaos, but all of you guys have to be on the same page. So I do think those things are correlated a little bit. I mean, it would be, it's interesting. And this, I mean, some of that is why there, there, it's always interesting, the... Uh, the degree to which certain players are better or less suited to playing kind of international roles. I mean, I think there's some rule aspects why, um, you know, one of the more denigrated players, un- unfairly denigrated players in the NBA is Rudy Gobert. And in the international style and international rules, he's, a, he's I think, a top five player in the world. Mm. And it's, it's you know, it, it doesn't make him a better or worse basketball player. It's just It's just remembering that sort of different things are rewarded based on how, like, the specific form of basketball you're playing, I guess. I think Damian Lillard, he had a really atrocious Olympics. Was it Olympics or World Cup? I can't remember which one it was, but he had an atrocious one. And I think when we're talking about that physicality on the perimeter, to me, he's one of the top, you know, Trey Young's probably another one here, but he's one. Damian Lillard to me is one of the top sort of like beneficiaries of this new way of playing NBA basketball. And when you see him get out there trying to pull up and jump sideways or even just Oh, I beat my guy off the dribble, but he grabbed my 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 waist to slow me down, and that's not called. Like those types of things, you really see how much it, how much a player's game is dependent on sort of those things. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've talked about the basketball. Let's 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 talk about you. You your okay. your new status as as uh, as Serbian, um, maybe not royalty, but knighthood. Sure. Um, so you know. What was that? What was that like? Was it just like you you cover Jokic closely, so therefore you get like some of the reflected glow? Like, talk me through. Yeah, how, was it, how that all came to be. Well, well, it starts with you know obviously we have developed a bit of a Serbian following. You know, I'm naturally curious, I think, about other cultures. I used to travel a lot in my 20s. I actually got a job in my 20s with United Airlines, so I could fly for free anywhere I wanted, pretty much any time I wanted. And so I'm like naturally interested in just going places and learning about them sort of organically. Um, and that was even before this trip. You know, we have a thing on DNVR we call Serbian Corner where we bring in uh, a couple of, of Serbian fans who have become analysts kind of like we have. And they'll tell us something about, hey, this reminds me of this or, or what have you. And I love that stuff just because it's so interesting. Um, so even before then, we had kind of just shown a genuine interest in like, hey, we have this weird you know, new culture that has been thrown at us, thanks to Jokic, Let, let's dive into it. And because of that, I think we had developed a pretty good audience out there of people that are like excited for us to arrive. I didn't know they would be this excited. When we got there, uh, you know, and start just like tweeting things out, everything's going viral, just almost immediately, within a day or so of us being there, 
anything we would post would make it in the papers, would make it, you know, on the, on the TV, like, okay, DNVR is doing this now. Look at these guys went here. They're doing these kinds of things. And we're starting to grow and grow and grow. Like every day that went by, all of a sudden, every, every little thing, we'd take a picture of some food we're eating and they'd do a story on it. And we're just like, wow, this is crazy. Like every, you know, Belgrade's kind of not that much smaller, I believe, than Denver. It's not like it's a small town. It's a pretty big city. And yet every little thing we did was, was going crazy. And everywhere we would walk, people would want to stop and talk to us and, uh, you know, take a picture with us. One of our guys in particular, Dev, was doing a series called Dev Likes while he's out there where he would attend an event or go to a museum or eat some food and he would say to was he like or not like it went viral to the point where other famous people were trying to get a hold of him so that they could be part of his video i my phone number somehow got out while i was out there you know i'm texting we had interviews with people like mishko reznatovich who's like the most powerful agent you know in europe Jokic's agent as well and, and some other like high profile red star basketball player this different things and so that's all i gave my phone number to well somehow my phone number got out and I got people texting me who I don't know, and I'd show it to a buddy. I'd say, who is this? Does anybody know? And they'd be like, yeah, that's a famous soccer player, you know, like, or whatever it was. It's like, wow, okay. Um, I guess I will accept his invitation to dinner. So it was just co- stuff like that. It was so crazy. Um, and I, it's a kind of a hilarious story where because we were more ignorant than anything, and so when people are texting me and I'm blowing them off, it somehow made us more famous. Like, does anybody know how to get a hold of DNVR? Does anybody know how to get a hold of Adam? I've been trying. It, it was pretty hilarious. So uh, when are you going back, <laughs> or is it just, or is it, or is it kind of like, no, we 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 did that. Let's leave it lie and, and not try to recreate something special. I mean, I, I I don't think there'll ever be anything as special as that. You know, the first the first time, it just was so overwhelming and it was unexpected. That we didn't go there thinking, hey, this is. I knew that we would have a little bit of a footprint, but I didn't think it would be anything like that. And I'll tell you, I'm talking about this as a weird experience, but it was really like a touching one because. One of the things you really learn out there, you know, Serbians, I think, feel as though, you know, they're a big nation and they have this sports, from a sports perspective, a large cultural input on on Europe, but that nobody really ever goes to Belgrade. Nobody ever, no American journalist ever goes out there to interview the people or to learn their backstories in basketball or this or that. And I think us going out there, part of our appeal, other than just people knowing us from back here, but I think what... We, why we gained so many eyeballs, new eyeballs, and so many people were really connecting with our trip from Serbia, I think was because they were like, hey, we've been dying to tell these stories. How do you guys not know about the 2002 World Cup team? How does nobody know about the 1995 Eurobasket team? How does nobody know about the 89 Yugoslavian basketball team? Nobody ever tells these stories. And so as we started to talk about them and, and learn about them, I think everybody was like, thank God somebody's finally here to tell these stories. Um, and that was part of the driving force for it. Sure. So I, based on all this, by the way, I, uh, I don't know if you, you had any plans to, but uh, there is a, a marvelous Serbian restaurant here in, uh, in Milwaukee. So when the... Uh, really? What's it called? It's called, it's called Three Brothers. Oh, cool. Um, it's, um, frankly, I think the best meal I've had in Milwaukee was there. Um, so, Do you remember what you ate? Uh, everything. I mean, okay. it, was, it was actually it was it was funny. It was uh, um, this is this is a tangent. But uh, when the finals were here a couple of years ago, um, a, a buddy of mine here is plugged into the local restaurant scene, and we kind of wanted to do like a like a media get together, like you know, a bunch of folks from ESPN, the Athletic, and wherever else. And um, that was just kind of the restaurant we decided on. And he, you know, my my, my friend who lives here, kind of just knows everybody and like got the restaurant to open for us on a Monday night just for us. And that's and awesome. They, like, they just cooked, and it's a it's a it's a restaurant that's been in a family for three generations. And uh, the the thing that I had that I thought that that was like, you know. Just over the top good was, uh, was the, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the the sure. but uh, chivachipi was yeah. was was like it was you know it's this it's a sausage and onions dish and it was just absolutely the most like succulent savory spicy. Oh, I just, so, yeah. so every, so that's like a, you know, like a meat, you know, like almost everything out there is, is salads and meats. You know, it's yeah. a lot of meats, a lot of like grilled meats. And yeah, they're so fantastic. And I'm telling you, we ate everywhere and nobody would let us order a meal. They'd make us order seven meals. You know, it was, <laughs> we, we had a kind of a running joke because it really happened the first two days or so where we thought, you know, they would bring out a big soup and then they'd bring out like some big steak and you'd be like, wow, that was a great meal. And they're like, no, 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 no. 
It's just getting started. And you're like, well, I just ate four pounds of food. What do you mean? Just We got four more steaks coming out, different types. And you're like, oh, my God. So I, I, when I'm out there in Milwaukee, I'm going to have to go to it because that sounds, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So, sorry, I didn't mean to, to derail you. But, it's, I mean, it seems like just an absolutely, like, a, 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 you know, a pretty, a pretty special situation. And, it, and obviously, I think the fact that, you know, you got some of the reflected glow must say something about, um, <laughs> you know, Jokic's place in the, the sporting culture there. No question about it, although I will say it's a kind of an interesting one. And one of the things we really learned and one of the things when we make this documentary, which will premiere here in about a month, that will hone in on is, you know, to them, NBA MVPs are really cool. NBA championships, even Peja got one with Dallas, really cool. But for them, it's all about the national team. It's so much more important and even to them more compelling so that all of the, I had somebody one time who I really respect rank, you know, Serbian players all time. And he had Jokic fifth. And it's kind of funny. This, and it's like, well, well, you know, how can he be like? Look, I'm not saying he's not better than these guys. I'm just saying he's not greater than those guys. And of course, it's because by their account, what you do with the national team is just so much more important and, in many ways, more impressive. And I kind of, after this trip, I kind of understand. I still think it's a little, you know, we're starting to do the weird rankings thing where we we value different things. But I I, I understand it a lot more. And not just why it's important, but why it's even interesting to them, why they weigh it so hard outside of just like personal gain. I, I think there's probably, I, I think that there's, there's a few things going on there. First of all, like just national team competitions. I think, you know, having soccer being the first sport in a lot of places, like national team competitions are so much more like imbued sure. in, 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 in that culture. Also, I, I kind of wonder if, uh, if the Denver was to win a title and, and Jokic was to be the best player and win finals MVP, I wonder how that calculus might change. Not I promise you, know. you it won't. I promise you it won't. In large part, and this is one thing I'm very confident in. I mean, it'll, it'll change in terms of like, they, they weigh that. Of course it means something. But they have just so many iconic moments, so many iconic upsets with their national team going back to Yugoslavia and obviously with Serbia later on. They have so many of them that those it's going to be hard to top them. It's going to be hard to say, hey, that thing over there was more valuable than what we remember. By the way, many of these coming during the war, during sanctions, during the bombings, a lot of their greatest moments came in that decade. So there, there's that, that emotional tie to it. But I'll tell you this to maybe, because this is how I understand it a little bit better. If we talk about a Baltimore City point guard, we understand that there is a cultural impact in how a player becomes a Baltimore City uh, point guard. You know, obviously you're playing a lot of games, probably a lot of outdoor basketball. The indoor courts in, bas- in, in Baltimore are very small. So there's not, in some places, there's not even a three-point line on the sides because it just runs into there. So what do you have to have? You have to have handle. You have to have toughness. We're not calling fouls. You have to be, and it molds you a certain way. If you think about New York City, same thing, quickness, get to the cup. We're not shooting jumpers. We're trying to break guys down, crossovers, get to the rim. And we understand that the culture has impact the style of basketball. I think with Serbia, with a very unique and interesting history over the last 30, 40 years, there's a similar like cultural identity to the way they play basketball and to what they believe to be the best way to play basketball. So there's some of that impact of well, as it's important for you to express basketball in the Serbian way or the Yugoslavian way, and that's why they weigh it so much more heavily. I think that the, using the word express is, is I think, I, I, exactly right. Because I, I again, this is something that that gets written about probably much more in in soccer than it does about other sports. But like, there is a there is a degree of I think you know identity that does get as you say expressed in that way. Right, it, it's exactly true, and that's why you know when we talk about the greatest fifteen year run in Yugoslavian basketball history and later on Serbian basketball history, it came during the split up of the country. It came during the worst part. So when you have this. It runs extra deep when you're trying to say, hey, this is who we are. Even when our country is changing in very important ways, this is who we are and how we do things. And, and so that just runs so deep. And when you look at a player like Jokic, who I think, by the way, embodies so many of the traits of Serbian slash Yugoslavian school of basketball, which, by the way, that's not a phrase I would have used. I learned about Luka Doncic and how he is like, you know, part Slovenian, but he really was raised in the Spanish style of basketball. And that explains like his game is very different from Jokic's even, uh, his personality a little bit different. So I wouldn't have used this phrase out for, for, other than from being there. 
But Jokic, to me, represents a lot of what, in talking to people, they value so much. Um, maybe not all of the things, but he, but he values, but, but so much of them. And that's why Jokic, to me, is a bit of an expression of the Serbian school of basketball. And that's why watching that game with all of the legends was so special to me. So I have two questions coming off of that, and I think this is probably a good place to stop. Is like, um, you know, to what parts of that what, of, of his game would you say represent that? And I, you know, I think that we've talked about this before, but a couple of years ago, I think in the bubble playoffs, there was like a thing that happened where um, maybe maybe this is me misinterpreting, but it seems like he almost went outside of and past that, and that's when he's kind of in the NBA terms taking that next next step. Is that, am I am I over interpreting things or not or? at all? I think you're giving a really interesting insight here because when we talk about you know, basketball in these like little silos, you know, Serbia is going to just play Serbian. To me, there is, it, it almost, I think you could misinterpret that to say it's the right way, right? Like that I'm, that I'm proclaiming the Serbian way is the right way. By no means. It's had some success. But I think that the basketball players who, this is what makes Kobe so interesting, is Kobe got a little bit of Italy, a little bit of the U.S., and I think you could probably see like some blending of those things in, in his game. I, with Luca, it's very interesting to me that you know he was raised in Slovenia. That it, by the way, his father's Serbian, so he has a little bit of that ex-Yugoslavian tradition in him, and then goes to Spain and learns a whole other style, and he kind of blends the two. To me, that's what's interesting about Jokic, is I do think there was something about him in the first half of his career to date that was, I think we would call it, from viewing it from an American lens, as passive. You know, oh, he's the best player, but he just wants to collaborate. He just wants to do this. I think there's something over the last three or four years, whatever you want to say, the back half, where he's realized there's a value in, you know, I, I, I'm simplifying Dominating. this. Yeah, but yeah. the American style of basketball, I'm, I'm simplifying yeah. it here. I don't, don't yeah. hold me to every letter here. But just the idea of like, yeah, but sometimes the best player just has to kind of flex their, their brilliance to kind of show everyone else. And, and that's part of what's cool about it. And that's what's cool about this experience is seeing all these different schools and which players can, can rise to the top and how they blend those different schools together. So I, I guess the way to, to, to finish that is I, I kind of I, I, I stomped over it, but like, what are those ideals that you think that 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 he that he both represents and sort of has gotten outside of to kind of become the MVP level player? Well, I mean, the first one is an unselfishness, and you know, obviously, this blends into the the Yugoslavian culture. You know, Yugoslavia was a socialist nation, anti-Soviet, but socialist nonetheless. They were a non-aligned movement country, really a founding member of it, but they were socialist. And you look at their basketball, it's a lot of, hey, coach is the guy. It's like, almost like college. Coach is the guy. He sets the tone. He's going to toughen you up. One of their great stories was of you know, the Vladi Divac, Tony Kukoc, the, the U19 team. So like right before they all turned professional and started playing for the national team on, the, on that level, they go up to the mountains in this like Rocky IV-esque style training where for a month they're just basically running up, carrying boulders up hills and doing these ridiculous training things. And, you know, so I would say the, the togetherness aspect of this where I talk to players from Red Star who you would ask them like, hey, what was your greatest game? And he'd be like, well, it was the one we won the championship. Well, how did you play? I had 12 points. No, but what's your greatest game? It was that one. You know, like this, this inability to separate individual greatness from team greatness as a mere concept. I know that sounds corny, but when you talk to all these people, they're like, how could I have a greater game than winning the championship? That was my greatest game, regardless of how I individually played. Um, there's a, a level of just toughness. If you think about Serbia, you know, they have um, over the last hundred years – really in their entire history, but over the last hundred years, been invaded so much, been, been, you know, so many different wards and different things going on. I think culturally they have this sort of like, um, everybody is against us. We have to be, you know, extra tough. There's, um, we would say these things of somebody from Baltimore or New York as well, where it's like there, you really don't make it out of there as a great player without being one of the toughest. Even if you're the most skilled, you're not going to make it through if you're not one of the toughest. I think that's part of Serbian identity as well. And then that underdog status that I think one of the funny things, you know, Serbia lost as basically the top seed in Eurobasket. And we all joked after coming off this trip, they're in the worst spot they could possibly be in as the favorite, the betting favorite, the number one seed, everything else. I think they're a country that, again, their best games, their best decade came during the breakup of the country, during sanctions and extreme poverty and everything else. They're a country that views themselves as underdogs. 
and all of their best work comes there. So Jokic, to me, embodies all of those things. And then when you talk about blending it, obviously it's just that I, I, Jokic did not want to speak up. He did not want to be the guy to be played through. Like when Paul Millsap came, Jokic is like, he's a four-time All-Star. I've never made an All-Star team. It's like his team. And it was so ridiculous because it was so clearly Jokic's team. But I understand that more. And part of the transition for me, or for him, I think, was, hey, this thing that's in my DNA to not want to be the guy, to, to not think that there should be a guy, him realizing, hey, over here in this league, it's actually good to blend that with what I have in my DNA and, and maybe change a little bit and evolve a little bit. So how does that, and I promise last question, how does that... These are good. Then, now, how does that then translate back to, you know, going back to that, that environment? Like, the, the, I, I feel like that's a, that's a tension. Maybe not for, for someone like uh, Luca, who just, you know, has the ball in his hands, so is, 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 you know, can just, you know, pull all the strings. But for, you know, a Giannis or for, for a Luca, like, oh, for a, a Jokic, right. um, is there a tension in kind of, you know, switching back to that, to that previous sort of mode? I, I think it's a healthy tension, though. I think you can be too much of one thing to, to one side. And basketball often requires different things. Sometimes it's game by game. You get into a playoff series. How are they playing me? Okay, I need to go. Oh, they're playing me this way. I need to, you know, I need to do a different thing here. So I think that tension is healthy and sort of understanding and, and perfecting that tension is part of becoming a truly great player. No different than if you were a great three-point shooter that never got to the cup and you learn like, hey, sometimes I'm going to have to get to the cup to set up the shot or what have you. That I, I feel attacked. <laughs> that tension can be perfect. And for me, I think it's still a work in progress for Yoke. You know, the last season and a half, really the two playoff runs, he hasn't, that tension has been lessened because there's been no one to pass to. You know, Jamal Murray's out. Michael Porter's out. I'm curious to see what that looks like going forward now when you bring those guys back and you have players who are capable of doing, you know, other things. By the way, the Serbian style of basketball, when I talk about teamwork, there's even a limit to that. Sometimes, and this is another thing Italy did, was sort of say, hey, no, we're going to take that away. It might actually require the guards going one-on-one -on -one to beat us. Like, you know, do the thing you're not, you're, you, you don't want to do. So there's a tension even between you can't always play like the 2014 Spurs. Sometimes if a team forces you to go a different route, you have to be able to do that. But for me, the last piece of this for Yoke is he's learning to blend these and he's starting to just get better and more dominant and, and understand better what's required of him. You know, one thing that I think he still lacks a little bit of is that vocal leadership and the ability to kind of get other in the NBA, I don't think you can sit back and say, well, my teammates didn't understand it. My coach didn't understand it, this or that. In the NBA, so much responsibility is put on a player. In Eurobasket, like nobody questions the coach. It could be the worst. He could be driving you off a cliff and you just have to kind of sit there and go with it. In the NBA, obviously, not only is that it's not expected that you would sit quietly, but that you would have some input in, a, again, a healthy tension of input between not too much, but not none. And I think that's one of the final pieces is Jokic getting the team to do the things that he wants and sort of galvanizing them the way that I think great winners figure out at some point. Well, I think that's going to be fascinating coming into the, this year. Um, uh, you know, the, the, speaking of healthy tension, like the, the, the tension between, you know, be, having these intense games that probably keep players in pretty good shape and on a sharp edge. And then, you know, for players who, uh, have designs on playing deep into May and June. Um, also, like, you know, not, 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 uh, you know, burning the candle up too fast. Right. Yeah. So that's, I, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing to see coming into the season with, with, you know, those, those three players that we've mentioned in particular. And Jokic is going to be interesting because, you know, he's going to have to carry, I think, a lot of the load early. And he's coming off of Eurobasket, you know, playing this summer. I think that your hope is that Jamal Murray at some point can take the, that load off of him. But when is that? December? January? February? You know, if you're Jokic, how do you get through 82 games when you're probably needed a lot at the beginning and end? How, how do you make it to the end if, you, if, you're, if so much is required of you? That'll be another thing that's a, that'll be interesting. I think, I mean, that's, that, that's a big part of, of everyone else on the team, I think, is, is um, you know, you're good enough to, for him not to have to play fourth quarters. I think that probably helps a lot. <laughs> but will they be that good right out of the box? That's that's one of my questions. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's you know not an every game thing, and I think that was a you know looking at Giannis, I think that was a you know I think that was a pretty big difference between uh, the title season and last season. 
I asked was, you know, okay, well, well, we, uh, you know, I can, I can play my 32 minutes and we're up 17 and, you know, can wave to people in the crowd and be done. And then, you know, the title, the, the title season was maybe a little bit less than last season with all the injuries was a lot less. And kind of towards the end in that Boston series, like game seven, he had nothing left. Yeah. And that's, that's what you worry about. I would think there's, there's no question about it. Um, Finding that balance will be tough for him. And by the way, teams, I think the book is out on you. I mean, everybody knows you attack him in the pick and roll. But I think less than just can you score on him at a high level, which over the last few years the question has been absolutely you can in the playoffs. But, you know, as you get your players back, we'll see if that's still the case. But even if it's not the case, just making him guard the perimeter and guard pick and rolls nonstop has worn him out on top of the fact that he's had to, you know, be the number one, two, and three option on offense. And that's the thing I'm most curious about is – if he can he play a better defensive role if he doesn't have to be the offensive hub can jamal murray be good enough that on if you overload on jokic he's just putting up 50 points like he did in the bubble that's one of the questions and then lastly i don't, you might have seen this tweet from me a couple of weeks back but denver for whatever reason this is a characteristic of them in the jokic era they just go to seven games every time <laughs> they get slow starts and they always come back and it's really weird and i don't know if it's just random but i looked it up and I think only two or three teams in the last 60 years, whatever it's been, have uh, won a championship without winning a series in five games or fewer. Almost inevitably, if you're going to win a championship, you have to get through at least one or two series in five or fewer games. And, um, you know, I think when we talk about fatigue over the last few years, I think it has as much to do with playing 24 games in three rounds or, you know, 18 games in three rounds as it does to do with anything else. No, I think that's I think that's a very astute point and, and definitely something to, to well, we looking way ahead. Um but we're, <laughs> we're, we have a lot to go between now and then. Um Adam, this was this was really a fantastic conversation. I I I've, I've uh like I I, ver- I envy your your experience uh heading over there and, and, and experiencing um you know the, the this culture in that way and, and uh, I'm very anxious to, to see this documentary, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me and, and to talk about this stuff, man. It was the most fun and interesting thing I think I've ever done. So hopefully other people are at least the slightly the interested Serbian, in it. this conversation, right? <laughs> this podcast particularly, most yeah, fun well, thing I've ever done. Well, of course. Uh, Adam Mars of DNVR, thank you so much for uh, for joining and. And thanks everyone else for listening. Uh, before I let you go, anything you you uh, you want to you want to pitch or just uh, look for the documentary in? in uh, yeah, in- I, I would say we have some really cool vlogs up on our YouTube page. You'll have to scroll in the Nuggets section back a little bit. Um, you know, about two weeks back. But if you, if you're this trip intrigued you at all and you want to see some video footage of it, we have some really cool vlogs from from basically every day of the trip that are up there. So DNVR Serbia. If you Google that, you'll probably find them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk again soon as we get closer to into the season. Sounds good. All right. Take care, man.